0: Present day. <laughs> Present time. <laughs>
1: Konbanwa. It's Zach Linkley-Chichi. I'm not popular, and tonight we are returning to one of my favorite formats for the show. Just me sitting here alone with all of you. Konbanwa. I think that maybe keener fans of the show will probably have already realized that my weekly posting schedule has been off lately, and that's partly to do with the fact that I just turned 26, and... I had, like, a lot of, like, stuff to plan around my birthday, etc. Um, But honestly, it mostly has to do with the fact that I've just been feeling extremely depressed and discontent lately. And the first thing one does when they discover a malaise in their soul is to, of course, dig through all of your emotions and try to scavenge out a reason for why you're feeling the way you do. So I tried to come up with a few pet theories, and I wondered if it was merely the astrological phenomenon of cancer season wreaking havoc on my soul and making me feel extremely vulnerable and emotional, or if it was the fact that I felt a little weird about getting my visa renewed and I have no idea like, what my like long-term career in Japan is going to be at this point. I thought it might be stresses in my interpersonal relationships. I wondered if it was just the heat, and I was, like, overwhelmed by how humid and hot it gets here. And I thought about if maybe I was feeling artistically unfulfilled. That my drag and my writing and my podcast, that all of it doesn't really amount to anything serious or meaningful at the end of the day. To be honest, I do think at least partially, that it is an accumulation of all of those things at once. But, really, I've always had a very strong sense of self, and when faced with adversity, I'm very proud that I've been able to reduce most challenges in my life into a dramatic and narrative detail in the unfolding memoirs of Zach Langley Chi Chi. A lot of those Hardships have unfolded live on this program. If you're listening to the Patreon, people have heard me move away from all of my friends. They've heard me break up with uh, loved ones of several years with whom I shared animals with. I've cried on this show before. I'm, I honestly feel like I'm very good at like putting all of these things together and turning it into something like a story and something I feel like I have ownership of. So it was frankly kind of disturbing to go through some difficult portion of my life and feel totally powerless to turn it into the course of my plot. And having your life laid out in front of you and what you're not happy about in it and having seemingly no power to curate it into something more meaningful, it is honestly a little bleak. And with that in mind, it led me to ponder on what I'm going to be discussing at detail this week. I started thinking a lot about the internet. The internet is where you're hearing me talk to you from right now. You're either streaming this, or you've downloaded it from an RSS feed. And beyond my immediate surroundings, 99% of the people who are aware of my presence in this physical world are aware of it as facilitated by this network. My existence, in a sense, is entirely constructed out of this input that I upload into the network that is then perceived, commented upon, and considered by whoever may come across it. Whether it's the mp3 file that I submit to my podcast hosting service, or the text representations that come to constitute a tweet, or the pile of pixels that assembles an Instagram image, all of it is this mass of data that comes to represent my soul in this digital hellscape. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, because I think that language is already sort of the internet of culture. It's a series of failing representations that don't quite convey the soul as you mean it, but are close approximation. I think the internet is quite similar in that way. But where I find the internet to be so evil and malignant and honestly horrifying is that with all of these representations you create of yourselves, it's done in a form where anyone who feels like it can feel free to perceive and connect with what you've put out there, interpret it as they will, and then thrust whatever understanding they have of you against you. So as I was feeling powerless to make my hardship and agonies something artistically meaningful, I realized that everyone else was already doing it on my behalf. So many invisible internet participants were taking whatever it was that I represented myself with online and summarizing it in internet group chats and screenshots on Reddit and theories on obscure internet forums, and morphing whatever I had tried to put out there into their own narrative of which I have no control. There is some phantasm of Zach Linkley Chi Chi that now exists somewhere in this expansive network. I suppose that I've become recently somewhat frightened of the internet in that sense. And maybe I shouldn't be because there's, you know, that famous uh, thought about writing that a novel is yours until you publish it. But all the same, the internet seems to maintain a specific sense of illusion. It is basically... A form in which every participant is lying and trying desperately to create themselves in the image they want to be seen as. So witnessing my own character as I try to present it online get stretched apart by these warring fallacies of the human souls online. Yeah, I mean, I do think it is justifiable to be a little afraid and depressed by this. This is the main service we use to connect with one another, and never in human history has so many human hearts been as close to one another as it is right now. And the praxis that we use to interact with one another is a monstrous web of mistruths and fury. There's a passage from one of my favorite philosophers, Foucault, in The Care of the Self, where he writes from the idea that the self is not given to us I think that there is only one practical consequence we have to create ourselves as a work of art. I have ardently believed this to be true and perhaps the reason that I am most disgusted by the internet lately in my rows of depression is that The idea of the self is being given to me. And it's not even being given to me, it's being actively forced upon me. I can feel almost like a mirror maze of Zach Langley chi enclosing upon me. And although this is true of reality and the fact that we only exist in the eyes of other people, the internet practicalizes it and makes it a corporeal, physical, tangible disaster in which we are absolutely flailing, trying to represent ourselves, and all we get out of it is a series of other people forcing their ideas of us back upon us. Maybe some people won't have ever experienced this. Maybe they haven't ever had mass commentary about them on the internet. But nonetheless, I imagine this to be true for everyone who is involved in this long-form project. Even if you're not being commented upon, even if you're not being discussed at length, somewhere you're being perceived in a way that you might not want to be. And those people will reflect that perception back upon you until you feel like these enormous walls of glass are closing in on every angle of your body until they shatter and cut you into pieces. Naturally, my reaction to try to come up with an answer for all of this and find a way out is to turn to what I always turn to, which is the art of the Orient. Whenever I am deep in crisis, I just look to the anime, the film, and the pop music of Japan, and I swear to God, there is always some path I haven't discovered yet. And when it comes to the internet and its particular brand of loneliness, I feel like Japanese culture is especially well-equipped in dealing with this. I feel like because of the bubble that popped in the early 90s when the entire economy suddenly failed after decades of opulence and people finding themselves trapped in these small buildings and finding themselves surrounded by masses of people who their own culture barely let them connect with, I feel like Japanese culture was particularly primed to deal with such an enormous problem as the internet. Anyone kind of familiar with Japanese culture will be well aware that they have a very strong understanding of the exterior and interior self, the self you present to the public and the self you present more privately. Which is, of course, the sort of hard-boiled understanding of this internet disaster I'm reconciling with now. The fact that we are living in a knot of the exterior facing and are being slowly deprived of the interior facing. This seems to be almost a traditionally ancient problem for Japanese culture... And thus, I find that a lot of their art is fascinatingly articulate about problems that the West couldn't even theorize years and years and years ago, and yet Japanese art had virtually solved in its theories well before Americans could even conceive of the idea. Out of the whirlpool of symbols and representations, I'm dreaming that maybe through picking apart some of these films and series and albums we're talking about today, that maybe there is something that can be salvaged out of this apocalypse I find on the internet. Of course, the world ended in my season 2 finale, and as I'm reconstructing the world, I have to know what to do with the human soul that has been exposed to the internet. And I think that somehow there might be something here that could take us out of it. commonly known as Pulse in America for some inexplicable reason uh, the title means circuit in Japanese is a 2001 film directed by Kurosawa Kiyoshi unrelated to the Kurosawa most of you probably know Kurosawa Akira but Kairo is simply one of the loneliest and most isolating motion pictures I've ever seen. There is something so dejected and empty and horrifying about the images on display here that it really feels like a translation of a condition that had yet to even dawn on the rest of the world. Um, My first experience with Kairou is that I went to go see Kurosawa's uh, Before We Vanish in the local art theater I used to go to back in Eugene, Oregon, and I wanted to see as much of his stuff as I could before seeing that for the first time. And I remember watching this alone on my laptop with the lights off and feeling totally dazed and ravaged by the imagery I had just experienced. The general idea of the plot here is that the spiritual realm of Hades has begun to overflow with the spirits of the dead. It's a finite realm that, in fact, can reach a capacity. And when it begins spitting souls out, it merely is as the sort of ghostly phenomenon we're familiar with from any uh, Japanese horror film you've basically ever seen. However, the introduction of the internet and electricity and these circuits that begin to comprise so much of the human experience, With, with the introduction of these general facets of our lifestyle, the spiritual realm has a much more physical means of access into reality. The apocalyptic scale and scope of this movie would maybe make you think that it all feels a little absurd, but Kurosawa Kiyoshi has a quite unique talent for depicting these ridiculous acts of bizarre cultural events and humanizing them by telling them very intimately and i remember thinking the same thing about before we vanish and although i feel like his filmography more recently has veered off into um a little bit of the saccharine and uh, sickly sweet post ozu japanese film i detest it's really refreshing to see what he was doing with stuff like Cure in this movie, Cairo, where he zoned so closely into these two human hearts that the apocalyptic nightmare going on around them ends up feeling deeply intimate. I think it's because instead of trying to create this grand Hollywood cinematic moment that, you know, I I have a lot of respect and appreciation for, Instead of doing something like that, he zones very closely into two contrasting narratives of a botanist young woman and a college boy who slowly watch these events unfold around them until every single person in their life has vanished into this Tokyo apocalypse smoke of loneliness and dejection until there is literally nothing left at all. At two hours, the movie feels very long, it is arduously slow, and it is quite often very boring, I think. But because you're subjected to this long-form, slow-motion realization of what's really happening to the world, you see these two characters and you have such a full view of their lives and their intimate realities that this intrusion of an enormous, you know, end-of-the-world, end-times event happening to them, it feels extremely real. It's honestly punishing. One of the reasons I feel like this is so brutal is simply because of the art style. I keep mentioning the imagery of this film, but I really can't understate how impactful it is To watch these shots go on for minutes at a time as you're forced to examine every small blurry VHS detail of these blackened walls and worn out cityscapes and overcrowded apartments filled with junk and cans, even the places that feel cleaner or somehow a little warmer. There is always a tangible distance and gap between the characters on screen. You always feel like they're orbiting one another, but never quite touching. When Cairo isn't behaving like a ghost movie, it really feels like this naturalistic and extremely haunting gallery of human beings just normally interacting with each other. But the normal interactions take on this tenor of utter isolation the way you see these people trying to connect with one another and interact and understand each other's feelings is nothing short of supremely depressing there's um there's a shot very early in the movie or a scene i should say where the main female protagonist is following up on a coworker who's been mysteriously absent from work And they seem to have a somewhat normal conversation where she asks him, what's the matter? Where have you been? And his kind of refusal to answer and general aura, you really feel these two hearts trapped in cages colliding with one another and never being able to successfully touch. I think the central metaphor here is obviously a little overstated. It's a little on the nose, but... Rarely have I ever seen such a crushing loneliness depicted as a fundamental human truth. And as all great Japanese art exceptionally does, this movie takes that, you know, fundamental human truth and augments it into a horror beyond our comprehension. I think one of the reasons that I've always been so deeply attracted to Evangelion and Battle Royale is because like this movie, Cairo does, they both depict these really sort of stomachable and recognizable feats of human life. Um, Evangelion being overcoming the mother and the father figures and learning how to live on your own willpower and Battle Royale being about finding the ecstasy in life despite the crushing systems placed on top of you. So what makes Cairo so fittingly dread-inducing and misanthropic is that it manages to still augment the basic human feelings of daily reality into an absurd, enormous event. But it also suggests that it's something you merely cannot overcome. You know, up until this point, I've been alluding to this doomsday event that is the center fulcrum of Cairo. And what it is is that ghosts manage to leverage the artificial connections between people on the internet to appear in the real world. They create these forbidden rooms made out of red tape that they lure people into under the guise of connection and they seduce nearly the entire population into abject suicide by means of hanging and leaping off of water towers and disappearing from their families with no word whatsoever. And it's so horrifying because if you aren't paying attention, you might miss that the doomsday is occurring in the background of this movie. You might miss that the pachinko parlor and arcade that is once stuffed with people sitting silently next to one another is suddenly completely empty, save for everything but a ghost and the protagonist. And aside from how unsettling it is to watch this calamity occur with a totally apathetic eye from the camera and honestly most of the characters, the misanthropy and hopelessness is what really makes this film a complete nightmare. Before we're even anywhere close to the end of this movie, we see... Every single optimistic character, every figure in this movie who wants to believe that life is worth living, and no matter how lonely it gets, there's always a possibility for a more ecstatic day. All of them are absolutely ruined by the narrative of this movie. The first girl who just wants to believe that nothing is going on and everything is normal becomes a total husk of herself Before jumping out of a window, having her soul turned into ashes, and then having it blow away in the wind as her best friend desperately screams and pleads to her to come back. But she's already been seized by the spirit realm. Her soul has been reduced to a black stain on the wall that chips apart and flies out the window. And... Even the most optimistic character who continually tries to suggest to everyone that there is meaning so long as there are two people on Earth. Even he, in his moment of loneliness and horror, is seduced into this red tape room. And he's so confronted and aghast by the revelation he has in this room that he too slips into the infinite we and gives up his body for the perpetual state of ghostly loneliness that is the pessimistic afterlife of this world. It's especially depressing because this final character he's managed to try and forge a bond with is desperately fighting to keep him on Earth and not slip into this smoke. And when he does, and is left as just a shadow on the wall, she imagines that he's still there and that she can continue to journey on with the one person who is closest with her. And there he is, just a black smudge on the wall of a destitute ship in the middle of the ocean, surrounded by nothing but water and the void. All in all, it is uniquely petrifying and horrific to see this kind of loneliness realized on film, and then have that same film tell you that there's no way out, and this is all there is. No matter what inventions we try to forge on this earth to artificially bring our souls closer together, we are all irrevocably trapped in this gelid despondency from which there is no escape no matter how hard you try to convince yourself that maybe there's
0: something. And
1: even if you are to die, even if you are to give up, even if you are to sacrifice your soul and abandon the mortal realm in hopes that there's something waiting for you in the beyond... Cairo insists that, in fact, there's even a greater well of loneliness waiting for you when you die. The poltergeists of this movie aren't so sadistic and malicious as, in fact, they are desperately trying to connect to any possible being they could. But in the worldview of Cairo, all of humanity is fated to float in a state of non-existence. Just your consciousness hovering in a room, begging for help, and futilely trying to reach out for contact. When these ghosts attack people in the film, they're not even attacking anyone at all. They're merely trying to be held. They're reaching their arms out and trying to embrace. But no matter your physical form, or what plane of reality you are on... As long as you're a human soul in this world, you are doomed to an existence of infinite loneliness.
0: あたし
1: title is an essential piece to the puzzle of figuring out the internet here because its understanding of the internet as a sort of vessel for loneliness is simply unparalleled in art, generally speaking. I have yet to come across almost anything else save for, like, a few experimental one-o-tricks-point-never albums that communicate precisely the essence of what it means to be artificially connected to people and what the consequences of that are. There's a really essential scene about midway through the movie where the male protagonist is speaking with a uh, graduate student in computer sciences, and she shows him a experimental program that another grad student has made. And on the monitor, There is merely a series of white dots gliding around each other and occasionally colliding and then subsuming another. And she explains to the male protagonist at this point that he shouldn't look for too long, because this is ultimately a diorama and miniature of the human experience. This graduate student explains that the dots on screen are constantly in pursuit of one another, If they get too far from another, they will drift back towards any of the other dots on screen. But to be connected to another is to die. It's to obliterate your own existence and submit it to that of one of the other dots on screen. What I kind of imagine that Kurosawa is imagining here is sort of a perfect simulacrum of what it means to be alive. We are all desperately seeking to be recognized and in some way known and connected to any other being around us. But just like what Ono suggests in Neon Genesis Evangelion, to be connected and to be truly known and to be held by another is to submit yourself to great pain and perhaps even the obliteration of yourself as you know it. The kind of marked difference that I think makes Cairo worth considering in this conversation is that he inherently understands that this pageant of understanding and reaching out for the other is inherently distorted by being alive in the age of the network. Cairo prominently features a sequence of scenes that seem to be filmed by um, these ghosts, in effect. They seem to possess some digital connection to the spiritual world where they can film and capture photographs of subjects um, by somehow manipulating the air or something. But these shots, when someone is being observed by an entity that doesn't appear to be there whatsoever, are deeply haunting and true. I mean, I can barely think of a symbol more canny than this when regarding the internet as a specter on our lives. Being connected in this grid that is supposed to make our hearts closer to one another means, in actuality, that you are only being silently perceived and made real and observed by some bizarre phantom hanging around your smartphone and PC. Of course, Kurosawa understands that this is a fundamental problem of the human experience because of the physicality of our bodies, we'll never be able to truly submerge ourselves in the being of another. But all the same, he looks at this system of circuits and sees that it becomes more distended and terrifying when you clash these human beings against each other and try to give them the illusion of connection. And in fact, that illusion is an apocalyptic Opening of the entrance to hell. This stage that is supposed to bring us together in some way really just opens up a gate into the nether world. It provides a reality made up entirely of illusion, so severe that it in fact only turns our loneliness and our failures to ever connect truly with one another into a practical nightmare. What is supposed to be a tool in connecting us is, in fact, a Shinto shrine erected in the name of just how impossible it is for any of us to ever connect. I was thinking a lot about Shinto imagery in this movie. Um, People who've ever visited Japan will be familiar with the enormous red gates, uh, the torii gates, outside of a Shinto shrine that delineate the passage between the physical world and a holy and sacred place. This movie prominently features as well, red tape erected on doors that mark an entrance into the world of loneliness. I'm fairly convinced that Kurosawa sees the internet as that exact set of torii gates. It's red tape put physically in our world that allow us passage into a truly disturbing and unholy realm made up entirely of our feelings of isolation and loneliness. For him, in 2001, this appeared to be the beginning of the end. This movie suggests that the birth of the internet is the first step in burning out all of the human population's life into shadows of isolation until there's nothing left at all but burning cities and lonely people. But if the internet is so powerful that it can in effect act as this passage between the physical world and the world of our representations and feelings, I believe that somewhere deeply embedded in it, there must be some sort of power we can salvage as well.
0: And you don't seem to understand I got not a I I to
1: Experiments Lane is a 1998 anime co-produced and created by Ueda Yasuyuki, directed by Nakamura Ryutaro, and written by Konaka J. Chiyaki. Lane is, for better or worse, one of the enduring E-girl anime icons. Like Evangelion and Maruka as well, There is something very deeply appealing about Lane to some of the most obnoxious women you've ever met online. And honestly, I mean, I can't say it's very surprising. This series is rife with a lot of images featuring despondent young women with alternative haircuts, looking frustrated and upset in front of high-tech technology, going to clubs, wearing clothes that are a little too cute for the tragic and disastrous iconography around them. Basically, if you've ever talked to a girl who got a little too cool too fast, um, maybe looked at like 4chan a little much in high school, I can guarantee you they have some sort of relationship with this series but e-girls who smoke 4% cigarettes and trans women who are a little big for their britches and have imagined themselves to be some sort of cyber god aside, uh, Lane, being only four years younger than me, is by far one of the most transient and disturbing portraitures of the self, the other, and the network that has ever come to fruition in contemporary art. Lane was recommended to me on an anime convention forum when I was like 16 and it was postured to me as the highest level of art that anime has ever achieved. I was uh, told it is extremely cerebral, difficult to understand, uh, full of metaphors stretching upon different continents of religion and faith structures And I watched all of it in about two sittings and was immediately enchanted. Like Keitel, Lane is also very domestic. And the manner it depicts the internet in is as um, some sort of creeping ethereal force that pushes itself out of electricity and into the real world in surprising and disturbing new shapes. The series is very well known for being um, nearly incomprehensible if you're paying attention merely in terms of plot, but I feel like those who just sit down and let it wash over them will come out with the same understanding as those who deeply study it and spend hours and hours picking apart its non sequiturs. Despite how daunting and non-linear the series can feel at times, the basic through lines of it are quite digestible, I think. To introduce a plot that is virtually non-introducible, the series follows a what appears to be a high school girl, Lane, very antisocial and drawn into herself as she begins experimenting with the internet in the face of a suicide of a high school acquaintance. As she gets gradually more sucked into the Wired, which is um, this series equivalent to the internet, she begins discovering alter egos of herself. Uh, Her friends begin disappearing and changing personalities. Uh, Surreal imagery keeps popping up in an indistinguishable merge of The wired and the real world, and she ultimately has to contend with the fact that she never really was a person at all, but appears to be rather a manifestation of the internet as brought to life by society itself. The series is quite obviously very philosophically heady, and it features, um, at the beginning of each episode, an omnipresent voice, Setting the tone as present day, present time, and then features a vignette of um, a scene in Shibuya as people are colliding with each other and crowded in the street and different monologues give a different question as to the meaning of existence each episode. The very formatting and layout of these episodes is highly avant-garde. Um, some episodes feature live-action shots laid over with digital camera work as the chorus of the internet asks what the point of the show is and who Lane's identity really belongs to. There are um, pseudo-nonfiction documentary pieces about UFOs. There is a uh, 12-minute rock sequence comprising half an episode towards the end of the series with a collage of the events so far making this um, nightmarish and incomprehensible display. And on top of all of that, the general tone and events of this show are all extraordinarily dismaying and often very gruesome too. The silent onslaught of internet's presence against humanity in Keitel is dissimilar from this where it is not a silent whimper into the dark, but a pressing mechanical scream that unfolds for these 13 episodes. I think it's in the second episode that a club is like literally shot up. There is this constant, like, mechanical techno-violence where computer chips and broken screens and coolant tubes are pressing into flesh, as well as the ever-present isolation of these girls using their computers as they stare with completely soul-dead eyes into the mirror that is the screen. The levels of specificity that Lane goes into about precisely how the internet can corrupt and devour a soul, spit it back out as something else that can be read and commented upon and subsume your entire identity, replacing you as it was, I mean, there's merely so much going on here that it's impossible for me to, even if I like did a three-hour episode, say everything I would possibly want to say about it. But a few of the things that I do know I want to say is that Lane gets the domestic terror of the internet, very right. I remember when I was, um, you know, still a teenager in high school and like jerking off on chat cams and on the internet and pirating movies and music and participating in weird internet forums for movies that no one cared about. I felt very clicked into a society that I had no access to in the real world. I had, you know, plenty of friends in high school, but up until then I basically had to rely on the internet and these subcultures to give me any sense of friendship at all. And this was unfolding entirely under the nose of my parents on my enormous, like, big screen gaming laptop or whatever and i was basically completely absorbed in a different reality from my parents and like running away to it and i mean i still find myself doing that when ever things are like challenging at work or i'm frustrated in my you know personal relationships i go right to the internet where i falsely believe i might have more power in creating a subculture for myself or a, a, a space where i feel like i can talk about the things i want to And the effect of that is there is basically a whole other human universe humming under the skin of all of our actual interactions in person. And the way that Lane sees this is both literally as a visual motif where a dark black red substance seems to be leaking out of the shadows represented by the wire. Meanwhile, All of the electrical power lines hanging above the city are nearly constantly humming. And the home life of Lane and her imagined family has been abstracted to a completely distant set of functionary relationships. There's no true love or interactions between them. They merely share food and fail to speak to one another as human beings. There's an especially upsetting episode where Lane's sister is, for the first time, sort of trying to reach out to Lane and understand what's happening to her as she sinks deeper into the cyber universe. And the further that she tries to relate with her or understand what's going on, she finds that time itself begins to break down and slip into these cyclical loops She can't remember what's going on or where she is, and it finally ends with her trying to talk to her sister, and her realizing she's been replaced by an avatar, and her true essence is merely a frightening shard of glistening blue pixels that cannot speak or represent themselves in any way whatsoever. And this is constantly happening throughout the series in a variety of horrifying and repulsive ways. I remember feeling especially disgusted when I first watched this and seeing Lane's mother and father making out with each other in the the genkan, the the shoe area of a Japanese house, and Lane looking on passively in a state of confusion, asking her father to install the next bits of her computer. And maybe it sounds a little bit um, on the nose, but... This scene like unfolds over two minutes and hearing the just revolting sound of their lips smacking together and the unique uh, animation style that shows their faces moving in this utterly abject fashion. I mean, it illustrates a disconnect that is so facilitated by the internet. It it really shows, like, these two worlds of the imagined network universe and our corporeal human world colliding with each other and creating an absolutely terrible state of isolation for all parties. And it gets even worse when you take into account the high school element of this story, where Lane is trying for the first time to become more sociable and she's attempting to party with her peers and when they take her out to uh, Siberia this particularly sensitive internet club where the wired seems to intrude upon the real world more than anywhere else everyone there already knows her as this like fantasy bitchy e-girl And she's totally powerless to reconcile with how she truly feels and what's been perceived of her by this internet persona. As I mentioned a little bit when I was summarizing the show, this all climaxes with Lane coming to realize that she was never a human being, but was in fact some sort of manifestation on the internet. People perceive this differently. Um, Some people think she's a specific part of the internet. Uh, Some people think she's a specific scientific manifestation or was specifically programmed or specifically, specifically, specifically something. But uh, personally, I think it doesn't matter what the exact mechanics of it are. I think it's pretty clear that by the end of the show, Lane was... A product of a uh, mass subconscious will in some way or another, there's a very compelling subplot to this story uh, buried just beneath the flesh about something called the schumann res- re- resonance spelling the Schumann resonance basically it's the hum of the earth it's a frequency that can't be heard but is in fact the very soul of the Earth and all of its human souls resonating in a single frequency somewhere on Gaia's orbit. All humans were already in some way connected. All of our hearts and beings were already in a primordial internet that was somehow resonating and making this impossible-to-hear a sound somewhere around the sphere of our existence. And like how Cairo recognizes that the internet was a creation of a sort of tori-gate passage into the spiritual realm, Lane sees the internet as um, the key to harmonizing with this Schumann frequency. It's a way of turning the intangible subconscious of the human emotion, the voiceless drive that we constantly share and pushes us forward somehow into the future. This invisible and mute force is literalized as a frequency and thus made real and accessible by means of the internet. But the consequences of making that subconscious will something that can be perceived and understood is Lane herself. She's become sort of an anti-god to the universe. She's an avatar of what should never be made real. She's an icon of something that has always meant to be unsaid and only felt and for that she's sort of a a demon one of the main conflicts of the show is the idea of keeping your human flesh or deleting it entirely for the sake of eternal life on the internet and close to the end of the series lane comes to the conclusion that a body is not only necessary but crucial to the human life, that having a body and having a physical, fleshly means of recognizing yourself and dividing yourself from one another is the only way to maintain any real identity and also derive any sort of valuable meaning from time on earth. But simultaneously, she comes to the conclusion that having been a person with flesh in any perceivable way has caused extraordinary harm to the people around her. And she ultimately chooses to delete the memory of her flesh from the entire world and become a silent observer as a sort of phantom of the internet. I think Lane does something really fascinating here in that in the first place it tries to humanize and characterize the Subconscious and silent observer that is this monstrous creation we've called the network, and give it a human face and try to depict its struggle as a summation of the human entity all at once. The final episode in some ways actually, funny enough, reminds me of the conclusion to the Death Note manga where we've seen a character desperately toil trying to save the world and make it into something more beautiful and just than it was before. But upon their deletion and upon their removal from reality, everything goes back to how it was. There's an, uh, an especially saddening scene when we witness the phantasm of Lane appearing in the human world and reaching out to one of her friends from her days as a human and they share a faint memory with one another and a gesture towards empathy but it doesn't go any further beyond that. And without the internet having a humanity to it with it constantly being this silent living being that we've forged it into this monocellular monster that we're all feeding into and hovers above us and leaks into our private world, I feel like we're left in the same... the same... the same world we're in now. Over the course of this series, Lane is giving a lot of agency to ask herself who she is. Ask the people around her, what is she? As an avatar of the internet, she's constantly asking anyone she possibly can, just like the ghosts trapped in the circuits in Cairo, what is her meaning? What does it mean to be a sequenced piece of data represented and observed by whoever on the internet what does it mean to be seen what does it mean to be known what does it mean Who to be am i What do I mean how to do i distinguish any of my being where, 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 where am i where do i live my life and where is real online of you i am myself <laughs> Your I am me. My myself is this, the entity responding to you right now. So you are I'm. I'm more than that. How do you know? Well, I. How do you know? I. I know. I. I know that I. I know that I feel myself. I. I feel myself responding to you. So you are in response.
0: You are the set I am by another.
1: But, I'm, I must be more than that. I, I know that I exist. I'm here. I'm right here. Where is this is a microphone. I, I'm talking to you with a computer. Connected to a network. I leave a mark of myself in the network, and the other can recognize the symbol and perceive it as me. You are no. No. L- look.
0: This meeting is being recorded.
1: Kumbama. Exactly the Chi I'm so tailor. That's me. That's myself. That is the real is It's a selection of words. A curated to represent
0: you. But it is not you. You are a collection of ghosts. Understood and misunderstood by a phantasm beyond comprehension. character behind
1: every audio. Who's to say? Who cares? Maybe it doesn't even matter. I'm sitting in the park. It's a little bit after 7 p.m. It's still abhorrently hot in this country. And uh, there's a gentle glaze of sweat enveloping me. The bugs are screaming. And uh, the wind isn't strong enough to cool me off. When I was thinking a lot about Serial Experiments Lane and what it means with my comprehension of the internet, one of the most, you know, impactful elements of it that I carried out was the philosophy that there is truly no you. Your existence is only tangible inside the hearts and eyes of other people and of course Lane kind of sees that as something horrifying when it's translated onto the internet and this phenomenon of ourselves never being able to escape the confines of our bodies and then being trapped in this maze of electrical circuits that are humming through the air at all times and slowly drowning us in their circuitry. Although it's, you know, quite horrible. All you can do with it is try to connect in some way. Lately, my complete disgust and fear of having to interact with the other and seeing them misunderstand and misrepresent and feel so divorced and distant from what I imagine myself to be. It is liberating in a sense that Lane says there is never going to be any you. No matter what you want, there's no you, there's no I. There's only the summoned cumulation of everyone's own wills and perceptions and understandings of you surmounting in some sort of impossible phantasm hovering above the grid. Even though I find the ending of Lane to be pretty dark and unnerving and... uh, Despondent towards the human condition, I believe there is actually some sort of optimistic edge pushing out of it. I think that Lane comes to the conclusion that although this nightmare of eternal misunderstanding and a complete absence of the you as you know it, even though it's quite horrified of that, I think it's sort of passive acceptance of it is important to my own comprehension of the internet and my turmoil with it so while we still have to deal with the internet as it stands right now we all have to be put into contrast with one another and dual the entire population against their understandings of you as everyone is constantly thrusting and making literal these lies and mistruths and illusions about their perceptions of the world. We're going to have to keep dealing with that, but there is something beautiful and human in that as well. And it makes me wonder if perhaps it's not merely the internet that's been causing me so much upset lately, but it's just having to look into this reflective pool of the network and see it literalized so painfully. But the ending of Lane, depressing and disquieting as it is, I think it also kind of ends with that off-color note that there is actually some sort of hope to be found inside that dark ether. In order to live, you have to clash yourself against the other. And as the main antagonist of the show, God, God of the Internet, as it it was, this designer who forges so much of the wired in his image and uh, gives up his physical form for eternal life inside the network, when he and Lane are putting their philosophies to the test against each other, Lane is able to come to the conclusion that she needs a body because this creature who has drifted into a subconscious so general and so accepted and so easy to understand almost that it's um, omnipresent and accepted as fact, to be that kind of creature means to have none of the ecstasies of being individuated. So even though Lane is merely a collective dream of a population connected online, she realizes that merely being a vessel for other people's understandings and tritely accepting all feeling is true and never pushing back with her own will, she understands that's not the way forward. And that's why she deletes the memory of herself and becomes the silent observer above it all. So that the humans of the world can, of course, hurt each other over and over again, but also find some sort of sublimity in conflict with someone outside and beyond
0: herself. Uh, uh.
1: for me to ever be able to tangibly prove that I am the way that I want to be there is no device or system or internet in the world that can make it so that everyone understands me as I want to be understood but I think somehow there's um a minor joy in that. <laughs> Capslock is the 2013 14th studio album by Japanese electronic duo Capsule produced by Nakata Yasutaka and featuring vocalist Koshijima Toshiko. And those joining me since season two of the show will know that I have a very long relationship with Nakata, who produced the entire discography of Kyari Pamyu Pamyu. And his work here in Capsule is truly one of the reasons I'm interested in Japanese culture and Japanese pop music in the first place. At that time, I was listening to, like, a lot of Daft Punk and Justice, and nestled in there was this kind of, like, clubby, house, electro-synth-pop duo capsule. Their single, Hello, really touched my soul the first time I heard it, and... I listened to a lot of their later period stuff before journeying backward and finding a well of truly fascinating music. Caps Lock, being their 14th record, delineates a very major moment in their career where they left Yamaha Music Communications, um, shut down a sub-label to leave, and joined Warner Music Japan. They changed the stylization of their name from being all lowercase to all uppercase and began to take a very seriously different direction with their career. Simultaneously, Nakata was producing some of the most important work for the other axes associated with Kyari Pami Pamu and the girl group Perfume, and 2013 kind of marked a retrospective on. Um, The first decade and a half of his time in the music industry and also a new start for the way he was going to handle his art. The best of Capsule's early work is kind of this beautiful meeting between dreamy Japanese like cafe pop and um, much more harder hitting jumping up and down club music and the deeper they got into their career the more they drifted towards the um you know really like four on the floor sort of um repetitious and formulaic club music that um i i still love deeply (laughs) i can't get enough of it honestly but nonetheless you could absolutely tell by 2013 that his work for capsule was kind of um, reaching a stalemate, and soon after, the music he would turn in for Pami Karipamupamu and Perfume would take on a major dry spell and kind of an autoplay texture for um, the remainder of the decade. But here we are in 2013, and um, as Nagata and his capsule project moves to a new record, you can definitely feel him doing something significant. Caps Lock is by far the most stylistically abrasive record of the duo's career. It is themed after a keyboard. Each song title is a different button or sequence of buttons on a keyboard. And the cold, icy record cover is nothing but a black sea or the translucent image of a CD cut behind a sea, depending on which version of the record you purchased. And like the nomenclature of this album's tracks, the actual music and sonic character and production on this record seems to exist entirely on the top of a keyboard. Half of the beats are composed out of a simulated clicking, or the sound of fingers making contact with a keyboard. There's this faintly digital echo across everything, and. It's almost as if you are hearing the world as it's interpreted from inside of a laptop. I feel like both Kairou and Serial Experiments Lane have that same quality. It's looking at the physical realm of the human being and imagining how it might be perceived from the perspective of the internet. Kairou sees the world as a empty shell of loneliness through which the internet is a passageway between one universe and the other, and Lane literally sees the internet resulting in a a single ego who can never confirm herself and is thus doomed to the mystery of the other forever. Though Lane acknowledges that, in fact, it is crucial to have a body and be differentiated from others no matter how painful or horrifying it becomes— I can't say that the ending of the series really makes me feel optimistic about that condition. And though I'm trying to make myself feel like I'm going to be stuck with the internet forever and I'm just going to have to learn to find sublimity in in being perceived and hurt and misrepresented by those who come to understand me, I, I feel like the answer isn't quite there yet. If the answer is going to be anywhere, I would trust no one more than Nakata to find it inside of his music. Nakata has relied on the internet and electronics and the computer to make his music since his very first record. He's responsible for introducing an entire European-tinged style of this bouncing house music into Japan, and the way that he became prominent through Perfume especially, no one else really imagined electronic and, and dance music in the same way that Nakata did. He had a lot of mobility, working privately on his laptop, and then anonymously sending his music to groups like Perfume, who barely had any interaction with him whatsoever. He basically created these soundscapes inside the keystrokes from his computer and then filed them off quite emotionlessly to be performed by other musicians. And when it comes to Capsule, he's even said that he envisions the act as a solo project. He views his uh, vocalist, uh, Koshijima, as merely an instrument for him to emote through he is in effect wielding the voice ego and spirit of others he's taking their essence and reinterpreting it as he pleases as if it's literally another key on the keyboard for him to strike and project his own feelings and vision of the world through This is almost precisely what I have been most horrified of as I've felt increasingly more divorced from my internet persona, as I'm watching people place it on their keyboard and then press it as if they can utilize it for their own personal means. I'm terrified that someone could interpret the way I exist and then refashion it in some brutalist and cold self-serving purpose. The moment I recorded my voice and made it a podcast or published a tweet or posted on Instagram or whatever conduct I'm doing online, the second I did that, I was virtually turning myself into one of the instruments that Nakata uses. People can take what they understand of me and then channel it in any way they see fit and... Except for the limited means I have in presenting myself, I have no power in changing that at all. The me as I know myself is completely unreal. It's merely an O or an I or a 9 or a shift or delete or escape on the keyboard in which people perceive their own experience on the internet. And up until this point, thinking about Kaido and Serial Experiments Lane, I've been struggling to find any agency or beauty in that at all. And even though, at times, Caps Lock is a record that I find abrasive and even obnoxious or annoying, honestly, scary at times, and dark and shadowy and uncomfortable, I find the overall listening experience from the first track to the last to be one that's actually really emboldening. This is an album that sees the coldness and callous emptiness, the hollow universe of the internet, its passage into loneliness. And instead of surrendering to it, it wields it. It turns it into something productive, and something that can actually create and make new meaning. I've been interspersing music from Caps Lock all over this episode, and while I was editing it and putting it together chronologically, I was really amazed by the precision in which Nakata wields his vocalist's voice. It's almost shocking and uncanny How deliberate it sounds. Japan is, of course, famous for things like Vocaloid and these imagined, programmed computer voices that are given character and reality by their producers. But this being a real woman that's singing and having her voice split into these melodic notes and spread into a total vision is nothing short of incredible. I remember when this album first came out, and I was desperately seeking some validation of my major emotional reaction to this, that most of the commentary I found was people reacting negatively. As if it was a misogynistic act that Nakata had reduced his, quote, partner, unquote, in this project into a mere vessel for him to use as he pleases. And of course, I've felt that terror now, but revisiting the album and hearing the ecstatic, overjoyed, explosive music he makes with that exact ritual, I mean, I can't help but find that maybe that's what I was missing in the first place. Her vocals appear on this album in two major songs. They're Distantly floating all over the place and deployed atmospherically in a lot of the record's um, back half. But most notably, you hear her turned into a midi pad, basically, on the tracks Shift and Control. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of this album is very atmospheric and spatial and extremely ambient. There's a lot of stretches of this album that feel like the circuits clicking inside of a keyboard and the darkness that occurs between each press. But on these two songs, her voice comes out shimmering in these enormous, pop, fast-paced, breakneck rushes of life. Control has absolutely no perceivable lyrics whatsoever. It's merely the intonations of her voice compositing this picture of something that's nearly beyond words. When I hear this song, and I hear the way it builds up uh, originally from one stroke on the keyboard to the next until it's piling in this glittering, midi climax... When her voice comes through it all in a speechless and emotional human burst, as dictated by a looming god, Nakata, above it, you feel, um, a terrifying awe. It's almost as if you're watching some unbelievably large object lift up into the sky, and although it's inarguably a pop song and an up-tempo one, there is this downtrodden and sort of tragic note to the production that really makes you feel like you're witnessing some end times event it really feels like um a toppling over of all of humanity up until this point human beings desperately trying to connect with one another throughout history until it's all been uploaded on the internet and it comes out this shapeless linguistic failure that nonetheless inspires great feelings of the sublime this transition that humanity has undertaken into the wired into the network into the internet it is of course something that we should be afraid of and something that we should sort of witness with one hand covering our mouth and the other grasping our neck We should be looking up and staring into the sky as this happens and our collective subconscious becomes a material thing. We should be looking at it, of course, with great fear. But we should also be looking at it and see it as a beautiful digital climax to everything we've been reaching for up until this point. Even if it's a failure, even if it's an emplatic... um, Emplatic isn't a word. I'm trying to say emblematic that's the word i was looking for even if it's an emblematic signifier of our innate inability to truly know the other it's something to take a sort of twisted pride in and equally so a deep-founded respect almost it's it's probably like insane to imagine that this is uh, what i'm getting out of like a pop song that has No lyrics in it, but when you look at this in context and imagine Nakata theming an album out of the very means in which his entire oeuvre is structured, when you hear something that sounds as melancholic and gigantic and titanic as this does, I just can't help but come to that conclusion. And it becomes even more so when we get to shift. Unlike Control, this actually has uh, lyrics in English, gibberish as they may appear to be. He writes, as I was reading earlier, Unreal at the dance studio. Soon, just wait in future for Jesus' walk through. Unreal at the dance studio. Soon, avocado dream he cook cooked. This sort of um, bizarro ego that he's using in this song um, could almost be mistaken for something out of the 90s where people would throw in random English words to their pop songs to give it some recognizable flavor. But as he's imagining the construction of his music and he's writing Unreal at the dance studio, he seems to be positing this dream of the future that happens when he makes his music on the internet and in his computer. It's an avocado dream he cook-cooked inside the dance studio, waiting for Jesus to appear out of the wired. And while Control kind of has that sadness to it, and that kind of fear of the end times I've been also quivering with for the whole episode, This feels purely ecstatic. It feels like he's come to a conclusion out of having your ego sucked up into the internet and having it redeployed. And it's not horrifying. It's not evil. It's not even a passageway for loneliness or a machine of trapping the ego, as we've seen in the other two pieces of media. It's actually a walkway for Jesus to step in through his production console. There are, of course, stretches of this album that feel supremely lonely. There's sections of it where it feels terrible and grating to have this process happening to you. But By the end of the record, and through these two songs, mutilating his partner's voice and turning it into an instrument, we actually find something close to transcendence. We find some actual synthesis for this entire mess. way to deal with having your soul raped apart by endless onlookers who have nothing but cruelty and misimaginations of you the way to deal with it is to simply take it all in your hands and use it as your own weapon you may be doomed to the human sentence of loneliness there might not be any way out of it offline or online And you may never be able to confirm that you are who you want to be. We're never going to be able to get rid of the monster that's been unleashed in these circuits. We're stuck with it forever now. And the only way to deal with it is to lean in. It's to take all of these persona outside of your grasp. And try to create something new with it. No matter how frightening or abject or ugly, it can end up looking, there are as many me's and as many realities as there are people logged on, and I can't do anything about that. I can't ever escape the loneliness or the shell of my own self, but I can attempt to seize everything I possibly can and look into this harsh bright light of the internet blinding me and just push forward in any way I can I'm of course still unnerved and feel like I <laughs> feel like I'm never going to be able to really like get out of the fun house mirrors that are piling on top of me but I can't just delete it and give up. I can't just stop doing the podcast or stop trying. When you're faced with something is monstrous, this enormous, grotesque creation that humanity has resulted with when it comes to the internet, all I can do is just make do with it. Try to utilize it in any way I can. Even if it comes out like some of these songs do on the Capsule album where horrifying toy sirens are bleeding into your ears or strange liquids are pouring over the electronics, no matter how disgusting or wrong it all feels, this is all there is. You can't run away from it. I know that I'm a product of this circuit board. I exist as much as it does, and without it, I don't exist at all. There's nothing there, so all I can do is run straight into it.